Welcome to the Metro Church Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by this message. For more information about Metro Church, visit our website at metrochurch.org.au. Let's give Wayne a really big hand. Come on, stand on your feet and say, we love you, Wayne. Great to have you here. Sorry about the All Blacks. Oh, you didn't have to go there. Sorry about the All Blacks, Lord. We pray for all the New Zealanders. <laughs> That are in grief, Lord, help them. Thank you, Amen. Amen. (laughs) For the Lord is good. His mercy endures forever. Man, (laughs) I'm I'm just not even going to go there this morning with the AVs. Nothing will bring me down today. I'm here to party. I had a party. Man, what an honour it is just to come back to you guys. It it really does feel like we're coming back to family. Um, We love you guys. And just to... Just to sit under, even just sitting with you guys last night at dinner, to sit with your pastor Jeff and Rhonda, um, you know, I don't, just don't take for granted, we never take that for granted, to be able to sit with guys that have been so faithful for so long. So I was asking about your legacy and where you've come from, because I just think, I see, we see a lot of churches, and when you see leaders that have been faithful for so long, for so long, man, there's just so much of God in that. Regardless of circumstances, is faithfulness, and God blesses faithfulness. And it's just a real honor for us to come sit with you and sit under you and, and glean from you. So believe me, it's certainly not one-sided. Um, this morning, um, we're, we're going to go through, I'm going to try and take you through like the whole book of Judges, if that's, if that's okay, just, uh, just to keep it light. <laughs> um, but in order to do that, um, actually, before I do that, I'll, I'll just tell you what we got out there. Y- yesterday with the team, we had a great time with the team, um, and we sold out of my books, which is really awesome, because there was only four of them. So, um, <clears throat> it's, a, it's a book called Rebranding Worship, and it's, um, it's something I, I wrote, I think just as we were, I think I'd just written it when we came here last night, or maybe I was about to, something like that. But it's just, I, it was a book that God gave me on pretty much all the Old Testament. But um, and to do with worship, it's it's a you can still get it at Kurong or um, or online rebranding worship. But my wife has written this beautiful book of journey, journey her journey into intimacy with Jesus, stories, life stories, but also stories of uh, worship and stories of intimacy with. It's guaranteed to make you cry, guy or girl, for sure. Boys are allowed to cry, and um, and if you get that, it comes with a little music music card card of some of the songs that we've re-recorded. Nice little soaking moment there for you. Is that okay? All right, and for the music guys, the music team guys, we still have that lot out there. That's video sessions and air training stuff that you really need. <laughs> Don't read anything underhanded in that. Okay. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and... This is a fresh word you need to understand. This is something that God gave me specifically for you guys, like, last night. So I, I could have just kind of rattled off another another one of the sermons, but I felt like, man, God really wanted to say, and for us to come here this one weekend that's free, I, I, that's not co- coincidence. So can we just sit with faith and believe and try and see past even some of the stumblings I may have to try and hear the word of the Lord? Okay, um, I'm going to give you a little bit of uh, context first, just, as, just before we get into Judges, and that, is, um, and that is where the people of God started, which is way back in Genesis with Abraham. We all know that, that God started his people with Abraham. Abraham and Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Uh, Jacob had Joseph. And um, by the time by the time they got to Joseph, they were a family of about seventy. Cool. 
So three generations before, God had said, I'm going to make you a really big people. And then three generations later, there's only 70 of them. And that's the time that they went into Egypt. So they, 70 people go into Egypt as one family. That's a, that's, they were a strong family. And therefore, when they went in there, they were heroes. Joseph had become number two in the land, so he was saving the world from famine. So when, when Pharaoh invited Joseph and all his family, Jacob and all, all the whole lot, there were 70 of them that moved in, and they said, come in and live in Goshen, which is the, I told the guys yesterday, the Beverly Hills of Egypt. They were favoured, is my point. They were favoured there, and their culture was strong. As a people, they brought in the blessing of God because they were God's people, right? But then they multiplied. As they multiplied, a pharaoh came along that, didn't, that hadn't heard of Joseph, and he started oppressing them. It's really interesting. When families grow, when you go to someone's house and there's a strong family culture, you, you, you love that culture. I know a lot of people who haven't had a strong family culture, then they come into a family whose culture is strong, they love it. Yes? Yeah, I used to love when people came to my house because we had a strong Maori culture, especially when Hangi came out. Hey, when mum and dad made the hungry, boy, they would just love it. It would all be just like, hey, let's, right? And I would go to other, other houses. I would go to some Samoan houses, and man, they had a really strong culture, and I loved the sense of community because of the culture. Churches have a strong culture. When you get a strong culture, when you get a strong church like this, you walk in, you feel the culture. But there's, a, there's always this, this issue that every pastor has to face, and that is, as the family grows, how do you keep the culture strong? As the church grows, how do you keep the culture strong? This is their issue, because now that people are growing, they're not just growing at, at, with them, themselves, now they've got oppression happening. How do you keep the culture strong when oppression is happening? You've got people facing all kinds of problems and stresses because they're in the world. Egypt is the world. Am, am I going too fast? Are you following me? Church is growing. Your church has been growing for a long time. But at the same time, we have to live in the world, and we're going through all this stuff all the time. How do you keep the culture strong? This Pharaoh decided to try and knock them all out, and because of that, God sent Moses to try and to save them. Moses comes out and saves them, brings them out to the desert. When he brings them out into the desert um, in Exodus, the culture is in tatters. These people don't know who they are. They're confused because they, they don't know their, their, their culture anymore. They don't know that they are the people of God. A lot of people have forgotten God. I imagine over 400 years of oppression, God would have become to a lot of them just a fairy tale. When you go through hard times, God, some, God to a lot of people seem like he's distant. A lot of people, after you go through a lot of stuff, you may have been raised in church, but then you go through a bunch of stuff, and then you end up at this end, walking away from God. Somebody invites you back to God, and you go, oh, I don't know. That's what I reckon these people were like when they left Egypt. There were young people that left Egypt. There were old people that left Egypt. They were all ages, and they, they would have all had some kind of experience with God. They would all have had some kind of opinion with God, but they didn't know who they were as the people of God. I'm sure there were some doing it right. Sure, there were some faithful ones in there that stayed faithful all along. When Moses went back to, uh, to the people and said, hey, God is here. And his own brother said, what, what about this God? Where was he when he's been oppressing us all this time? When we've been oppressed all this time? You hearing what I'm saying? There's always somebody. There's the haters. There's the doubters. There's the faithful. Which one are you? <laughs> You're going through this time. So they walk out and they come out of this land really wealthy for a start. Because they, they got all the, all the gold. 
when they get to the, the mountain, their culture is in so much tatter, they have no idea who they are as their identity, that God has to reintroduce himself to them. God says, hey guys, you don't know me, but I'm your God. And I want you to be my people, and you are to be to me a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. Actually, I know your grandfather, I know your great-grandfather, and I know your great-great-grandfather, and right back, I'm the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, and right back at the start, I made a promise to Abraham that I would build him a people, and you're supposed to be it. Is this making sense? You're the ones. You're the guys. So how about let's get ourselves together? Let's establish ourselves. And you know what he did? He first of all gave them the law. He gave them the Ten Commandments. He said, okay, this is, first of all, he showed them himself and said, this is who you are. Then he gave them the law, the Ten Commandments, and said, this is how I want you to behave. But you, you clearly can't do this without some power, without strength. How? How are you going to have the power to behave? Well, I'll show you how, and I, I want you to build a big tabernacle and worship. Worship. Let's get our worship together. When you worship, that, that establishes you as a church. When you worship corporately together, that really establishes you as a church. These people were used to worshiping in Egypt, so they had no idea what real worship was. When they tried it, the whole golden calf thing showed very clearly that they did not know how to worship. Their worship was just clearly all about self-indulgence and about sensuality. Man, how many of us have been into that worship? Out in the world, in Egypt, our worship was about sensuality and self-indulgence. Then we get saved and God brings us into the church. Are we going to bring our golden calves with us? Or are we going to worship properly? Because even in church, we can make our church things. Because remember, the stuff, the, the gold that they used was theirs. They created a god that they thought, a golden calf, to substitute God. Not an Egyptian god, the new god. We can make worship a golden calf. We can make the church systems a golden calf. We can make any ministry of the church a golden calf. Look what I'm doing. Look what I'm doing to help the homeless. Look at me. Look what I'm doing. Man, this is so good. I'm getting so much worth from this. Look at me playing up here and singing and, and, and I'm leading my people. Look at me praying for people. Demons are fleeing. Man, I'm just so good. I'm so good. You understand? Any of this stuff can be a golden calf if we're not careful. So God has to teach us how to worship and how to worship properly. That's what defines the people of God. And so he, he built a tabernacle and he says, I'm going I'm to take this people of disorder and make them a people of order. You feel me? I'm going to make this people of disorder and make them a people of order based around their worship. Because when, when worship is in order, man, everything flows. And so this people that finally became, after they'd finished building the tabernacle, they were a very different people to those people that were worshipping the calf. By now God had turned them into obedient people. He was so pleased with them that he filled that tabernacle with his own presence. And that, to me, is the sign of the people of God, the ones that are filled with his presence, that he's pleased to be able to come into the presence, to their tabernacle. Oh, man, last night, Friday night. Was it last night? It was only just, oh, no, Friday night. Yeah, when we worshipped here, and I, I sensed the presence of God filling the temple because his people were, were, were pleased to, to be able to build with faith and worship with faith. And his, I could see him attracted to it. And, and it's are people like that who know how to worship God in heart and spirit and in truth without having to rely on a worship band is the one that God is attracted to. So the, he builds a temple. God fills that very temple. This is the one where the people couldn't even stand. Right? The priests couldn't stand. 
So he fills the temple with his glory. Now it's all set and done. He goes, okay, now this people, I'm going to take you to the land that I promised to Abraham a long time ago. Long time ago. I promised it to him. I'm going to do it. I'm going to take it. So he starts them going. What should have taken them only weeks took 40 years because during that time, after their radical salvation, they had to work through their heart issues. Even though there might be a consistent church, there are still individuals that have to work through their heart issues. Even though you belong to a church that has great systems, you still have to sort out your heart because church can't be your personal relationship with God. There's a great system going on here for how many years? 30 years you celebrated last year. 30 years Metro Church has been around, but it can't be your, your walk with God. You can't take Metro Church back into your home. You can take Jesus back into your home, but you can't take the church. Are you feeling me? I'm getting somewhere here. And so when they, when they finally make their way through the wilderness and they, and they after 40 years, finally get in there, they, they reach the land of Canaan, which is the promised land. By now, Moses has died and Joshua has taken over and he's got the job of taking the people in there. And what he says to, this is really funny, actually. What he said to Moses at the mountain with the golden calf, just before he, 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 said, to, he said to Moses, okay, Moses is going to come up on the mountain. You guys wait here and whatever you do, don't make idols out of gold and silver. And right afterwards, they made the golden calf. It's like somehow he knew... Right? Well, when they were about to go into Canaan, <laughs> he said to the people, right, Joshua, and you, we were about to cross over into the land of Canaan, whatever you do, don't marry foreign women. Because then you'll end up worshipping their gods. It's all about worship for him. And so the people went in there, and they, whilst they, they killed off some of the people, they didn't kill all of them, and they ended up marrying some of the women, which led them to worshipping their gods. And that leads us to the book of Joshua. Judges. Have you got a, have you got a feel for it so far? <sighs> we struggle, man. Like the people, there were people of all ages that came out of Egypt, young and old. Some of us were saved. Some of us have saved young, some old, some in between. Some of you have had church backgrounds. Some stopped believing a long time ago because of the oppression of the past, of trauma, of experiences that have left people with fear, cynicism, and bitterness against God. And God has to take people through a wilderness often just to get us out of Egypt properly into Christian life. <laughs> By the time they finally get to the promised land about which Abe was promised, um, it was... It was, it was really set aside for him. There was one job that they had to do when they got there. He had promised to Abraham, when you get to this land, I want you to wipe out the people that are there. The people that are there were Canaanites, Amorites, Canaanites. Canaan was, this, was the grandson of Noah. He was the one over whom Noah prophesied and said, cursed be Canaan because of the depravity of his, of his lowness. He will always be a slave to his brothers. Canaan represented the depravity of man. Canaan was the symbol of sin throughout all of the Old Testament. The Canaanites and all the people that were associated were always like the arch enemies to the people of God. 
when you saw what these Canaanites got up to, it was everything apart from God. It was everything outside. It was everything that, that depraved man will lead to when you don't live a life of God. Can you understand why God said, hey, when you get back there, I'm, this is symbolic. This is symbolic to say no matter how strong sin gets, when my people enter that land, my power to destroy sin is greater than the power of sin at its best. <laughs> you feel me? Oh no, I just, I just said, well, come on. Home. Okay. Okay, Joshua died and they immediately turned to idiot worship. I mean, idol worship. <laughs> this is so stupid. Judges won. Um, they fought the Canaanites and God gave them utter victory, but it says in Judges 1, verse 27. Um, but Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bethshan or Tanakh or Dor or Ublaim or Megiddo and their surrounding settlements, for the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. If I mention any of these verses that I, that I gave you guys, just go ahead and check them up. It's not, I'll read them anyway. Right? It, was, it was this line that really got me, for the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. Just because a sin is stubborn, it doesn't mean it deserves to live. Judges 2, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give to your ancestors. I said, I'll never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I have, and I have also said, I, w- I won't drive them out before you. They'll become traps for you, and their gods will become snares to you. Scary stuff. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. It just makes you want to slap somebody. They've been through the wilderness for 40 years. You'd think that they would have sorted their, their attitudes out, sorted their hearts out. In fact, he had to wipe a whole generation out before he even got them in there. Now this new generation goes in there. They're supposed to wipe out the Canaanites, wipe out the sin that was in their own hearts. You guys have been going a long time. And whenever I see a church that's been going a long time, it's always a generation, generation, generation. Just because this generation did well doesn't mean this generation doesn't have responsibility to wipe out their own Canaanites to wipe out their own sins. Which generation are you? And how are you wiping? How are you dealing with that stuff? Joshua was the one that said, hey, as for me and my house. right? He said, choose you this day who we will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. When I look at the households around here, I'm going to ask you the same question. Regardless of the fact that you have an amazing church with a long legacy, great systems, great prayer, great worship, choose you this day who you will serve. Because the church, although it's a collective, it's made up of individuals. And if we want to find direction, then we have to, as individuals, come together then as a collective and say, we will serve the Lord. Because you can't just stand up when a crowd, it's easy in a crowd. Hey, it's easy in a crowd to say, yeah, yeah, we'll serve the Lord, yeah, 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 and then go home and secretly sin. You, you just, you, you see it all the time, and God is not blind. <laughs> God isn't blind, he sees it all. 
Don't get me wrong. This is not a, this is not a secret sin word from God, from the Lord. He's, he's not saying everybody's secretly sinning. I'm just, I'm painting this picture of here because everybody, everybody is sinning. <laughs> okay. Then the Lord raised up judges. The Lord then used the situation for his advantage and kept the, kept the sin nations to test the Israelites, to train them for war and to test their faithfulness. It's, a, it's an amazing cycle that they would go through. It, because, the Canaan, because the Israelites left Canaanites alive, the, God said, okay, I'm going to allow them to stay there. They're going to trap you, but they will be a test to you. God is awesome. God's verse that says all things work out together for good for those who love the Lord and accord to his purpose, he can use that to turn around. So he, he enabled these, he allowed these nations to live so that they would help train the new generation for war, the ones that had never fought. You know, as, we're, as we're seeing the new generation coming up, there are going to be things that are just there. They're going to have to fight against stuff. And if the Lord is allowing it, then he, he's the one that can enable that stuff to teach us, to train us, to guide us, to strengthen us. You can't grow muscle without it having been strained. So he does. He allows them. And, they, and, um, and what happens is these, he, he allows the enemies to rise up. When the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord, then he would allow the enemies to rise up and start to oppress them. When the people would call out to them, call out to God and say, help us, help us, help us, he would say, oh, now you want my help. And then he would raise up a judge to come and save them. This cycle repeated at least seven times. The, the, I'm actually going to read it because it just, it's just torture. <laughs> Othniel was the first, was the first judge. He, he killed the, 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 first, the first king that came, in, um, that came and oppressed them. Ehud, he killed a, a big fat king called Eglon of Moab. Um, it's really funny, that story, because Ehud, he went in and said he was left-handed. He pulled out his dagger, and the king was really fat, and so he stuck the dagger in, and, it, and the handle got lost in the fat. <laughs> so he left it in there. Okay, what's really funny... Okay, are you ready for this? What's really funny, this is in the Bible. He said, when he stabbed him, the king discharged his bowels. <laughs> it's in the Bible, man. <laughs> discharged his bowels, knife stuck. And then the guy just left him and locked the doors and went out the side door. <laughs> the servants had to come and, and get a key and unlock and find their master dead. <laughs> Shamgar was the next guy, killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. My whole question is why? Why did these guys need to save them? Because constantly the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord. So frustrating. Judges 4, again, this is straight out of the Bible. Judges 4 verse 1, again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now that Ehud was dead... So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Yet another one. Deborah was a prophet. It was the next. Yeah, this is the next judge. Deborah was a prophet who led and prophesied to Barak to kill the evil king. During the battle, a lady named Jair stuck a tent peg through his head. (laughs) 
These are some pretty wicked stories. When you're reading through it, it's like, man, this is, a, this is brutal. These are some of the more brutal stories in the whole Bible because it was, there was, it was kind of honest. What it makes me think is, man, this, this stuff was real. This is when life gets real. It wasn't just like, hey, uh, you know, I have to wait too long for my McDonald's order to come. This is like, you know, kings coming against you and, and people throwing you out of your house and murdering your children and doing stuff like that. So when they had to fight back, it's like, okay, God allowed this stuff to come and uh, allowed that, the enemies to come, but then the Spirit of the Lord would come and rest on one of these judges and these judges would raise up and do these brutal acts. And it's like, why are we living in these days of such brutality? Because we keep doing evil. When we, when we see it there, we, we think, man, this is just, this is like, it's really obvious to us. And we, you get so frustrated. It's the same when you read the book of Kings. Anybody has this, the same deal? When you read the Kings and another king comes and it says, and the king did evil in the sight of the Lord. And you're like, ah, dang it. If I was king, I'd do good. Would you though? <laughs> this is the whole question though. Would you? If you were part of those Israelites, would you, be the, would you be a faithful one or would you be one that did evil in the sight of the Lord by worshipping Baal or by worshipping Ashtaroth or by worshipping McDonald's or by worshipping Netflix or by worshipping my Air Force Ones? I've had three people comment on how clean they are. <laughs> no, it's not, not worshipping them. I'm not saying nothing. So... And yeah, so after Deborah had, had been there in Barak and um, Jair stuck the tent peg through the evil king's head, we get to Judges 6 and we think, oh, okay, cool, maybe they'll do good. But Judges 6 starts like this. Verse 1, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Man. And so the next chapter starts with Gideon. Who's heard about Gideon? Gideon, not enough to do, it wasn't enough for Gideon just to de- defeat the Midianites, but he, he defeated them with 300 men. God was really come, coming you know, to prove his point. Hey, I can do this. If you call to me, I can defeat anybody. But then he has to not just feet, defeat the Midianites, then he faces a whole lot of infighting. All his own brothers and his own tribes start fighting against him. Now he has to come and fight them. He's just fought off the enemies. Now he's in church fighting his own people. Not that churches have any infighting in them. At all. Jealousy among the tribes. The Israelites said to, to, to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you've saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And I thought, yeah, awesome. In those days, I said there, has no, there was no king in Egypt, uh, in Israel, but there was a king, and his name was God. It's just nobody wanted to follow him. Right, so when Gideon said that, I thought, yeah, cool, right? And then I said this, yeah, um, he said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. Yeah, we'll be glad to give you a bunch of earrings. So they spread out a garment, each of them threw a ring from his plunder onto, the, onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels. That's an awful lot. They used to live on 10 a year. Not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments. Gideon, verse 27, made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshipping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Dang it. 
Judges 9, his Gideon's son takes over, and um, he, had to kill, he killed his own brothers. Now we're really getting into the infighting. As if we don't have enough to fight out there, now we're fighting amongst ourselves. Uh, we see Judges 10, a bunch of new judges came along, Tola, Jir, Jephath. Um, they, they continued to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Judges 11 and 12, more infighting. Judges 13, 14, 15, 16, we finally get to the story of Samson. You know Samson? Samson and Delilah. Um, and there's this amazing, amazing verse at the end of Samson. We know that Samson was just, you know, his, his, his own dude. And he, he was by no means the, 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 what's the word, the model Christian. Um, but once he had kind of gone through his stuff and he had, he had his eyes gouged out, he did call out to the Lord once. <laughs> he, he called out to the Lord once and says this amazing verse, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more. And that's when he pushed the pillars over and killed all the, and, and died in the process. There is a place where we can get to of repentance, where we say, Sovereign Lord, remember me again. Sovereign Lord, you know the things that I've been through. You know, I've recognized that I've, even though I've been in your service all this time, there are things in my life that I haven't sorted, that I haven't surrendered to you. There was a whole bunch of stuff in my life that I've, I've got jealousy amongst people. I've, got, I've been flirting with the world. There's, there's, there's been conflicts and there's been things, and it's just it's time I need to get my heart right. And I just feel like God is saying he is a merciful God. He is a patient God. And all he's waiting for is us to say, Sovereign Lord, remember me again. Give me strength one more time. You know what's beautiful about this? Um, it, it goes on from there in, in the last few chapters to describe a really horrific scene, and that's where Micah creates idols. He makes his house into a shrine. He, make, he, he creates these idols out of money that he stole from his mother. Who steals from their own mum? The mother, once, he, once she found out who stole the money, cursed the one that stole it, which was her own son. What mother curses her own son? This is the state of the nation. Because God, gold was obviously her God. And so, it, and so when, he, when he gave the money back, she said, well, let's take some of it and let's build an ephod. Let's build a, some sacred things and let's make a shrine out of our own house. You know, what, you know what the big deal with that is? I was reading this going, okay, so wasn't everybody kind of doing this? No, what they say is, even though it was written, like this is the last chapter, scholars reckon that this story happened right at the start. It was the start of idolatry. This guy made a shrine out of his own house, and then he hired a Levite priest. The priest was set aside to, to be the priest for God in the one house of God, right? But this Levite went, went, left his home and went wandering looking for jobs. Why? Because they had, the people had a responsibility to not neglect the needs of the priests. In Deuteronomy 12, it just says, do not neglect the needs of the Levites. Because they are the priests that are supposed to represent you to God. So what was the state of the priesthood like if this guy had to leave and go look for work? They neglected the priest, which means they were neglecting the tabernacle. If they were neglecting the tabernacle, they were neglecting worship. And if they were neglecting worship, then they were neglecting God. And that was the state of the nation when this guy, this Levite, then started wandering around looking for a place to, to, to be a professional priest. When he knocked on the door of this guy Micah's house, he saw a shrine. Micah said, cool, hey, I've just set up a, a, a church. 
I've just set up a church. It's based around this cool music that we've got. Or it's based around this cool understanding of the word that I've got. Or it's based around this cool doctrine that I've got. I've just set up my own little thing. Or it's based around this fancy new berry drink. And, and you're a priest, you're a priest of, the, of God. So I'm going to, how about you come and be a priest here? You know what the guy had done? The guy had set up his own son as a priest, but they weren't, they weren't, they were, they weren't um, Levites. So it wasn't an official. When an official Levite came, he said, oh, man, can you come in here and be my priest? I'll pay you 10 shekels a year, give you clothes and food. What surprises me, and this is a guy said, yes. The guy says, cool, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. Awesome. I've got somewhere to live now. The things that we will do, even as Christians, even as priests, our official calling, our official role, you're supposed to be a priest to the rest of the world, but we go out looking for ways that even as a Christian we can, we can bring in goods, we can get worth from. There's only one church we to serve. So, this, so the, the, the Levite comes in and becomes a priest in that place. And then there's, worship, there's shrine, ephod, bar worship going on in this house. And the, the priest of God himself is there officiating it. The saddest thing is, okay, the, the, a whole tribe now comes. The whole tribe of Dan is looking for a place to live because they hadn't been given any land. So they're wandering around looking for a place to live. Would they come by this guy's place, this guy Micah's place, and discover, hey, hey, this guy's got a shrine here. Maybe we can go uh, seek God. But they go in and discover they're not really seeking God. They're just seeking other gods. But while they're there, they notice this Levite. Hey, what are you doing here? Oh, I'm the priest now for this guy. So they figure, oh, well, if he's, if, if he's there, then this must be okay. Tell you what, grab all those sacred things and come and be our priest. So now they steal this priest. The priest says, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. You're going to take care of me better than this guy. So now the priest and all the shrine stuff, they wander, they wander off with the tribe of Dan. This is ridiculous. Micah comes out of his house, sees all his stuff gone, runs after them. Says, hey, what are you doing with all my stuff? The guys turn around and said, you better not ask questions. There's more of us than you. He goes, my bad. <laughs> my bad. You go ahead. Go ahead. So they go and find a land, some innocent people over here, destroy them, steal their land, and set up this shrine right there with this Levite priest. And they go, hey, now we're settled. Now we have our own church. And the saddest verse in the Bible to me, well, actually not the saddest, but one of them, is Judges 18, 31. You guys can put it up. There it says, There the Danites set up for themselves the idol, and Jonathan, son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests for the tribe of Dan until the time of the captivity of the land. They continued to use the idol Micah had made all the time the house of God was in Shiloh. They set up an alternative church, and the very priest of God was, was leading that while the house of God sat in Shiloh. During this whole period, it lasted for about 300 years, the house of God never went anywhere. During this whole time, this, your church has been here a long time. It's never gone anywhere. You've got faithful leaders. Faithful, faithful, faithful leaders. And I, when I look at this and I see the state of the nation and think, what an absolute mess. It gets worse after that. 
tells another story of a priest who took, takes a concubine and, and they end up in a city where um, they, they get hosted by an old man in his house. And during the night, some, all of the men come to the, the guy's house and say, bring out those visitors so we can have our way with them. The, guy, the, guy's inside, the priest is inside, pushes the concubine out and says, have her instead. The heck kind of priest does that? The heck kind of dude does that? So they, ha- they rape her all night until she's dead. Priest comes out in the morning, finds his concubine dead on the steps where she had been. Her hand was on the threshold of what she thought was safety. Can I reach out to God? Because the only thing I know of God is this man that represents. And she couldn't find safety because the priest was... Oh. He comes out and says, look what this has done. Takes her home, chops her up, sends all the body parts out to the other tribes in Israel. Israel gets together and says, this is horrendous. And so they attack that whole tribe, the tribe of ben- Benjamite tribe. And, now, and they destroy them. They slaughter them. There's only 600 men left of the thousands and thousands and thousands. And now there's no woman left. So they're saying, but then they, have a, then they have a change of heart and go, oh, no, one of our tribes is about to be slaughtered. What are we going to do? We have to get them wives, but we all took an oath that we're not allowed to give them our wives, so we'll come up with a scheme so that you can get wives. It's ridiculous. The scheming and the stuff that they have to do to try and keep themselves in order when all they need to do is come back to God. Sometimes we look around at the circumstances that we've got. We don't understand why it's so hard. It seems so messy. There are some people doing things right. There are some people doing things wrong. You're looking around. I'm seeing conflict here. I'm seeing people trying to worship God, but they're doing it wrong here. I'm seeing all kinds of people in all kinds of states, and somebody just needs to come along and say, let's just get you back in order again, just like God did with those people in the calf with the tabernacle. Let's get the tabernacle sorted. Let's take a people of disorder and put them back into order in their worship. Are you starting to hear God? And what's, what's beautiful is that the end, this book finishes right there. And I'm like, what a mess. And you know the book that comes after it? Ruth. The book of Ruth. The most beautiful redemption story in the Bible. There's a famine in the land, it starts, and Naomi goes away and she discovers Ruth, who's her daughter-in-law. Ruth comes back to her, comes back with her into, into Israel. And in that space, Ruth shows faithfulness and shows integrity, and she's a Moabite. <laughs> it doesn't matter whether, whether you've been a Christian a long time, whether you're out there. Someone that shows faithfulness and integrity and beauty and kindness, God favors because of that, attracts the attention of Boaz, the great redeemer, who for us is a type of Jesus. Boaz is so kind to her. And he manages, I don't know, in one single book, he manages to restore all of Naomi's line. He manages to restore the, the Ruth's story. He manages to restore the land. There's, now there's crops, there's everything going on. And Boaz does an amazing thing. He goes through every single detail. He goes, hey, you're the proper landowner. You're the proper one. You're the actually one in line. But he goes through all the right things. This is God. God doesn't leave any detail left out. He doesn't leave any stone unturned. He works through every single detail until that point where he marries Ruth. 
And there's this beautiful verse that, and I'll finish on this, the verse right at the end that says, so Boaz took Ruth into his home and she became his wife. When he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant and she gave birth to a son. Then the woman of the town said to Naomi, praise the Lord who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. Naomi took the baby and cuddled him to her breast and she cared for him as if he were her own. The neighbor woman said, now at last Naomi has a son again and they named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David. What a story. What a story of redemption. No matter what state of disorder our lives are in because of what has gone on and you don't know what's going on, you're looking around, you're thinking, man, where are we at? Where are we at? Where's my life at? Where's my household at? Where's our church at? God says, no, if you will turn to him, he will be Boaz to you. He will restore, he will bring, and he will look after your line. He will restore things from the past. He will look after your future. He will look after your future. And it will come from places you don't even know. It will come from a Moabite. It will come from some person that just comes from the outside and you have no idea. But if you show faithfulness and kindness and integrity to the Lord, he will restore everything. I feel like that's the word that God wanted to give you. He is the great restorer. He is there for you. He is your great Boaz. Could we stand and we just respond quickly to the Lord? Can I hand it back to Pastor Jeff? But let me just pray for you. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord, that this day we can choose, regardless of what's gone on, regardless of where we've come from, what we've struggled with, regardless of who's had fights with who, who's had conflicts with who, regardless of what sin I've struggled with, regardless, with, regardless of, um, of the doubts that I've had in you, the schemes that I've done. Regardless of all that, Father, we have the choice now to choose you, to choose who we worship. And Lord, we do not want to do evil in the sight of the Lord. We want to be those that choose to serve the living God and worship only you. So would you restore us? Would you restore us as a family? Would you restore us as a church? Would you make us like the tabernacle that was so pleasing to you that your presence came, filled that place with your glory? Lord, fill this house with your glory. From the back row to the front, from every, to every family that's involved, fill every house with glory with glory in Jesus' name. Man, that, when that people would look in and see the presence and the glory of God over every, every household to see the blessing of God. Thank you, Jesus, that you are our Boaz. You are our Redeemer. You are our Redeemer, and you can restore. And for that, Lord, we turn to you, we look to you, and we thank you for amazing restoration. Thank you for your promise that says, all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and accord according to his purposes. And for that, we say amen. Amen.